Father in heaven, now we come to this which uh, you have told us is your word. And so we pray that we would acknowledge it as such, that we would uh, listen to it as such, and that through it we would hear you speak to us. So work in us, God, take away any resistance that we may have to listening, to hearing you. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Titus in chapter 1, New Testament letter. Towards the end of the New Testament, small letter, Titus. In chapter 1, please. And uh, let me read. Verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and the hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Way to go. He did it without prompting. That was good. All right. And I want to take up, if God will help me, just this little expression in verse 3, really, out of what I read, and at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. And I, I just want to ask this morning a very basic question. Why preaching? Now, that may sound a bit self-serving. Um, I assure you, I trust that it's not. We all listen to preaching. Uh, in the context of the history of the church, preaching has been part of worship. Uh, many of you listened on Sundays. Many of you listen sermons, preaching during the week on your radio or whatever device you have as you drive back and forth various places, you listen to podcasts, so forth and so on, uh, of preaching. So this question then, why preaching? Uh, Paul's point about preaching doesn't come uh, in isolation or in a vacuum, that is, it comes in a context. And the context is this introduction to his son in the faith, Titus. And as we've mentioned, it's a bit of an odd introduction because it's rather long, Uh, for a short letter, long for Paul, and also Titus knew Paul well, so we trust he had a reason for this long introduction to introduce himself in a way that would help us understand this letter and introduce himself for those who would read it subsequent to Titus, perhaps those would hear it in the days of Titus as he would read it to the Christians in Crete, where he was a pastor on this island in the Mediterranean. And to us and to those who would come after. And so we get this rather long introduction. Paul describes his himself, his, gives his identity and his authority. He says he's a servant of God. So it tells us something about how he understands himself, how even we understand ourselves. He's a servant. He's a slave of God. He's been bought with a price. He's not his own. And so he serves God in what he does. He's an apostle of Jesus, that is, he's been sent out by Jesus, and he uses, it appears, this expression, apostle, in quite a unique way, that is, unique to those original apostles who had actually seen the risen Jesus and received a commission from him in that sense, and directly, we know Paul didn't have a an experience of the risen Jesus in the same way that the other apostles did, that is, right after the crucifixion, the resurrection, they saw him. 
Paul somewhat later on that road to Damascus, but still that was his sense of calling from the risen Jesus and his experience with him, making him an apostle, as he says, as one untimely born, but still an apostle nonetheless. And he comes with that authority uh, and that unique authority to speak and to write that which is the very word of God. So much so, Paul said, if you hear a gospel different than the one we preached, then those who preach it should be accursed. And, and so Paul came with that authority and the mission that he had his goal was for the sake of the faith of God's elect, that is, to, to bring them to faith, of those whom God had called to be his. And also for the sake of their knowledge of the truth, and it's a particular knowledge of truth. It isn't just knowing more about God, but it's a knowledge of the truth that leads somewhere, and it leads to godliness. It leads to godly living, to the point where if you hear truth and it doesn't lead to godliness or it doesn't, isn't consistent with living a godly life, it isn't the truth about God. So their knowledge of the truth with accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life. Uh, and that's our hope, you see, eternal life. All of this together, the faith uh, enables us or is an expression of belief in all that is true of Jesus. This hope in eternal life is the anticipation that all that Jesus did and all that we receive from him will, will really be ours. Not only now, but, but always. That's this sense of hope. It's this faith on tiptoes. It's this, this anticipation of the good that is to come. And, and, and this hope is eternal life. And, and we mentioned that Jesus' definition of eternal life was that it meant to know God and Jesus Christ, whom God had sent. So, so, so eternal life, yes, it, it, is, it is this everlasting thing in quantity of time, but it's more than that. It's a quality of life, and it's this life that comes from God. It's life that comes from knowing God. And we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that it's our sin that keeps us from knowing him. And so Jesus has come to overcome that, and in his coming to overcome that, then he enables us through his work on the cross to be reconciled to God, that we might know him. And so he deals with our sin by taking the guilt of it upon himself and paying its penalty so that we then are free of it, the guilt of it, the penalty of it, so that we can be reconciled to God that he can accept us and receive us so that we can know him. And when we know him, you see, then we enter into this fellowship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We enter into this, this relationship, this fellowship of love with him, where we know his love for us and where we love him in return. His love for us then is seen in providing for us all that we need for life and for godliness. Now and always. And our love for him is reflected in our worship, our adoration. And to live in humble submission, in joyful obedience to him. And, and, and we do that joyfully because we, we're in this fellowship now of trust, of love to him. 
And so, so that's our hope, eternal life. And that eternal life begins now, of course. We have that life now. We know forgiveness of sins. But we also know that we haven't received or haven't experienced this eternal life in all of its fullness. It's begun in us. And we know that this eternal life will not be stopped by our death. That on our death, we'll enter into the very presence of the Lord to continue even more intimately in this knowledge of God, this eternal life, living in humble submission, joyful obedience in the worship of God. And then we also know, too, that, that a day will come when we'll see it in all of its fullness, when Jesus returns and, and all is restored and all is renewed, and, and we're living in the new heavens and the new earth, where everything reflects the glory of God. That is the hope of eternal life. And it's sure, it's certain. It isn't a hope that's 80% or 60% or 99%, but it's a certain hope because God doesn't lie. And he's the one who's promised it. And he even promised it, so secure is this hope, that he even promised it before the ages began. And so now we come, as Paul's kind of laying this all out, all out. So how then, the question would be, how then do we know about it? If this promise was made before the ages began, how do we know about it? How, how can we know that this promise was actually made, this promise of eternal life through what Christ did? And Paul said, well, at the proper time, uh, this promise was manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been um, entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. It, the knowledge of this promise comes by preaching. By preaching it. By declaring it. That's how this promise is known. Paul's preaching in particular. Uh, he is an apostle to the Gentiles. He, he was the one who, who took this word, this declaration out. But, but it was before him and after him. We, we see that Jesus came to preach. Surely he came to die, but he came to, to preach. He came to proclaim the kingdom of God. In fact, uh, we can read passage after passage. I won't. I'm tempted to. Uh, but passage after passage about preaching. Uh, Jesus, Matthew chapter 4, says from that time on, very beginning of, 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 of Jesus on the scene, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That was his sermon, if you will, to repent, to turn from uh, trusting in yourself and in the rule of your own life and, and, and trust in this kingdom, for the kingdom of heaven is near in Jesus himself. And then later in that same chapter in Matthew chapter 4, we read this, uh, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. That is to say, he was announcing something about the coming of this kingdom. Mark in his gospel puts it like this, chapter 1. Jesus said uh, to his disciples, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. He came to make this proclamation, you see, to, to let people know that this promise that God had made before the ages began was now upon them. And that there was indeed this hope of eternal life. The passage that I read in our liturgy this morning from Luke chapter 4 is one of those passages that we should read and just stop and just suck air. Because Jesus was in the synagogue and he takes this passage from the prophet Isaiah and he applies it to himself. 
And you, you might remember the punchline of that was today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And if you're familiar with that passage in Luke chapter 4, you know they got upset with Jesus for applying that to himself. Because they understood really what he meant by it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to make this announcement. He has set me uh, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and to recover sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim, to preach the favorable year of the Lord. And Jesus sent out his disciples to preach in Mark chapter 3. We read this. He appointed 12, designate, designating them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. In fact, he says that this message will be preached until until he returns, Matthew chapter 24. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. So so preaching, it's it's by preaching that, that this word goes out. It's not only by preaching, obviously. I mean, there's other ministries of the word. People talk to one another one-on-one. And there's counseling and there's teaching Sunday school classes and small groups and teaching in various settings. But there's something about this proclamation. There's something about the gathering of people together to hear something being proclaimed. And, and that's what the, the, the early disciples did as they, as they went out. We read through this in the early church in the book of Acts. Remember, uh, Philip, uh, one of the disciples uh, of Jesus, went to Samaria and it said that he proclaimed the Christ there. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, um, in Acts chapter 9, after his conversion, spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. To make this declaration, that's how it was made known. Peter speaks of this um, as well. As he talks about what happened when he went to the household of Cornelius, this uh, this Gentile, he said, We are witnesses of everything that Jesus did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Uh, he was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And all the prophets testify him about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so, so Peter said, we've been commissioned to, to preach, to announce this great promise that God had made before the ages of eternal life that comes through faith in Jesus, that's being reconciled to God, to knowing him, living in fellowship with him now and always, right? So, so much the importance of preaching is that when, when Paul writes about the, the message of this gospel going out in Romans chapter 10, he says this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? And Paul himself speaks of his own preaching. 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 
David Paul would write, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And then Paul says this preaching needs to continue. So when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy in chapter 4, he says to Timothy, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. He says you are to, you're to preach. That is, you're to make a declaration. You're to proclaim something. This word preach comes from kind of a, a tradition of, 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 of a herald if you will. Someone who comes as almost the town crier to say, hear ye, hear ye, listen to something. Something's happened that changes everything and, and, and I need to announce it to you. But the question, why that? I mean, why preaching? Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because you see, what is being announced is something that came from God, not from us. It was, it was what he has promised and what he has accomplished, not what we have thought up and what we have done. And so preaching announces that which is true about God, that which God has done. That's what, that's what preaching essentially does. It, it brings God's word, if you will, what God has done in the New International Version has it. It brings this word to light, this, this, this preaching. It, 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 it's consistent with, with, with this announcement because it isn't a conversation per se. It isn't a dialogue. It's a monologue. God wants to tell us something. And so it's announced. It's preached. That doesn't mean we don't ask questions. But we don't ask questions to negotiate this with God. We ask questions to better understand it. And so it, this is announced what God has done. And what we're announcing here as preachers preach ultimately is the greatness and the glory of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. The greatness and the glory of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, you see. You see, everything in the scripture and everything that we know is, is really ultimately about God and his glory. When the Bible starts out, it doesn't start out in the beginning, human beings. It starts out in the beginning, God. You see, this whole book is to be a revelation of God, a declaration of who he is. And that's what preachers are to do. They're to take this and declare the greatness and the glory of God. I mean, even, even human beings, uh, we were made in his likeness to glorify him. We were made to reflect him. That's why when the Apostle Paul talks about sin, he says sin is essentially falling short of the glory of God. It's falling short of living for the very honor, the very glory, the worth of God. When we sin, we're saying there's something worth more. There's something more glorious than God. When Adam and Eve sinned, the, the serpent and his word were, that was more glorious than what God had said and who God was. Eating from this tree, having, having this knowledge of good and evil outside of the context of, of who God is was more glorious to them uh, than knowing good and evil in the context 
of what God had declared who God was. Their own autonomy was more glorious, was worth more than being united to God. And so when we sin, what we're essentially saying is that there's something outside of God that's worth more than he, and that will dictate and define our lives. So sin is falling short of this glory of God. And so so we're to live to glorify him, to reflect him. And that's what the scripture is about. Even our salvation that comes through Christ is ultimately to bring glory to God. Now, wonderfully, it saves us and rescues us and reconciles us to God. But, but, but Jesus came really, first and foremost, in his salvation of us, even to glorify his father in John chapter 17. And I refer to this often, of course, this high priestly prayer of Jesus. Uh, Jesus begins his prayer by saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. See, see, that's what it's, that's why Jesus came. He came to glorify his father. And he would do that by way of the cross. And he would do that by way of showing the very worth of God, the greatness of God, by coming himself to die, to vindicate his father's glory that was seemingly lost in the garden when Adam and Eve turned against God. And he says, what I'll do is I'll, I'll show your worth, father. I'll show your glory. And by restoring all that was lost. And by having a people who will honor your name. By having a people who will joyfully submit, joyfully obey and worship you. And so even our salvation, Jesus came for the glory, you see, of his father. And so the, the first call of, the, of preaching is to reveal God, to show his his glory, uh, his greatness. Um, J.I. Packer, who's a theologian of some note uh, in these days, though perhaps not long for these days, um, tells of an experience um, of his in the late 40s, 1940s, when uh, he was worshiping in a church in London called Westminster Chapel. The pastor there, the preacher there, was a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Lloyd-Jones was not a terribly impressive man on his own. He was small and, and uh, in stature and, uh, and uh, somewhat quiet generally. Uh, yet there was something about his preaching that attracted Packer in his early days of working out his own theology. And, and he, he said that when he went to these services, there was kind of an electric shock that went through him. And when asked why, he says this, Martin Lloyd-Jones brought to me more of a sense of God than any other man. And again, uh, Packer and Lloyd-Jones would have agreed that, that it wasn't Lloyd-Jones so much, but it was, it was his preaching. It, it was what he talked about. It was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was the content of it and the power of it because, because it was about the glory of God in the face that we know through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, he said that was it. That's what compelled me. That was the electric shock. Because through this preaching, and Paul says that's what preaching is to do, it's to reveal the glory of God in such a way that we're captivated by it. To reveal the greatness of God, that we see God as, as the treasure, as the one of infinite worth. 
the one whom we've always longed for and needed, the only one who can satisfy and fill us, the one without whom we are utterly lost, but the one in whom we are utterly blessed. And that's what we're to declare. That's this sense of preaching. In the late, um, early, early, really 18th century, a preacher by the name of Cotton Mather, rather odd first name Cotton, but his father's first name was Increase. Um, what his parents were thinking. I don't know what Cotton Mather's parents were thinking. I'm sure they had a meaning in the days in which they lived. But anyway, he was a preacher in the late 18th century. And he put it like this. He said, the great design and intention of the office of the preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. The great design and intentions of the office of the preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. I would take that to me. What the preacher is supposed to do is show God so glorious in his ruling and reigning over everything that we are captivated by him and that we joyfully then submit to him. He's sovereign over all, that he rules and reigns over all things and that is our hope and that is our comfort and that's what enjoins us to him. In fact, uh, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 52 lays this out for us, uh, an expression that's, that's brought forward to us in the New Testament. Let me go to the New Testament passage first just so you can kind of understand where we're headed. In Romans in chapter 10, I read this a few minutes ago. The Apostle Paul is making the expression, he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he goes on to say, how then can they call upon him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's a funny expression, isn't it? You might think he would have said, how sweet is the voice of those who preach the good news. But he says their feet are lovely. <laughs> and you say, well, I don't get it. Well, if you turn back to Isaiah in chapter 52, I think you'll get it. Verses 3 through 7 uh, describe uh, the Lord and uh, um, rescuing his people. Verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings the news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who to Zion says, your God reigns. That's the good news. So why the feet? Well, it's a military image. And the image is is as if there are two armies who are battling on a mountain. And the kings of those armies await in the distance, viewing the war, the battle going on, and they can't really see who's winning, they can't really get a good sense of it, and so what happens is that a messenger is sent, and the king can see the messenger being sent, and if he's a king experienced in battle, he'll know whether the news is good, or whether the news is bad, by how the messenger is running, by his feet, he can watch his gate, and he'll know if that's good news, Or if that's bad news. 
Those of you with children know what that looks like. When they have good news, you can tell as they're walking to you. When they have bad news, you can tell as they're walking to you. Well, the messenger, you can tell. And so he says, how lovely are the feet of those who bring good news. And what is the good news that that messenger would bring to that king? The message, the good news that that messenger would bring to that king is you reign, king. We're winning. The real good news is our God reigns. And the preacher is to bring that news. That's why preachers have lovely feet, you see. They bring that news. That God reigns. God rules and reigns. Now that isn't good news if you're an enemy of God. But that is good news if you belong to him. And that's why you see this, 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 this preaching, the theme of it, is ultimately always Jesus. Because you see, the glory of God comes to us in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how, that's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians and, uh, and chapter 4. You notice I no longer call it 2 Corinthians, for, so don't become confused with anyone. But 2 Corinthians in chapter 4. Paul writes, verse 6, For God who has said, Let light shine, of darkness, shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where we see it. That's where we see the glory of God. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. In Hebrews in chapter 1, went too far. Only had to go two pages. Hebrews in chapter 1 speaks of Jesus like this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm the manifestation of his glory. And where we see the gloriousness of God in Jesus most amazingly is on the cross as he gives himself. For us, that his father might be vindicated. That is the glory of God in Jesus. See, in his coming, he shows his father's worth. But we read that this morning in our profession of faith uh, from Philippians in chapter 2. That Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God um, a thing to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, you see. He did that for his his father's glory and for our salvation. For his father's glory, so he could show his father's worth. I'll come and vindicate your name. I'll come and, 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 and regain all that was lost by sin. And I'll do that by taking the penalty of sin and breaking it uh, for those who are yours so that they will come and they will trust you and they will worship you. And I will free you, God, to Father, to forgive them because I'll enable you to be just, that is to deal with their sin in all of its fullness and the penalty required and yet be the justifier of all who believe. Because the sin has been paid for. So all who trust in me. Because I'm your son. And all those who trust in me are in me. 
And thus, when I died, they died. When I rose, they rose. So they can be forgiven in yours, you see. So that is the ultimate task of the preacher, is to come and to show this message of Christ. That's what Paul did. I read this earlier to you, verse two, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians in, chapter, in verse 1. He says, Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come to you preaching the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That doesn't mean Paul wasn't wise, but it wasn't his wisdom. He hadn't thought this up. He hadn't figured this out. He hadn't made this plan. He's a wise man. But he said, it isn't my wisdom I bring to you. I could have never thought this up. I, you probably, some of you weren't even here when I prayed the prayer of invocation. You were out there somewhere on your way in. And you missed something. Very important, not because I said it, but, but this prayer of invocation. What I, what I, as, I, as I invoked, called upon God to be with us and acknowledged his presence, I made in my prayer uh, a prayer of thanksgiving to him, to, to the Father for devising this plan, for the Son to executing this plan, to the Spirit to applying this plan to us. It wasn't our wisdom. So Paul says, I don't come with my wisdom or, or, or lofty speech to impress you. I don't want at the end of the day to be to you leaving this place, Paul said, and said, to, and, and have you say, Paul's one of the smartest, most eloquent men I've ever heard. Paul says, no, I don't want that at all. If you leave with that, I've failed. You've missed it. God hasn't been glorified. And so he says, I come to you with the testimony of God. Uh, 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 not with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said, that's it. I come to let you know that God reigns. I come to let you know that he's glorious. And the way that I let you know that he's glorious is to tell you about Jesus and the cross. If I tell you about anything else, then you won't get it. You won't understand it. You won't know. And so I come to tell you about the cross of Jesus. And I was with you, he said, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. I don't have a lot of confidence, Paul said, in myself. And my speech and my message were not in, in plausible words or, or uh, persuasive words in and of themselves of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of his power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He says, because this message, this message of Christ and the cross is powerful. And it's powerful because, you see, because that is the agenda of the Holy Spirit. The agenda of the Holy Spirit, and whose power a preacher comes. The agenda of the Holy Spirit is to exalt Jesus. That's why he came. Jesus said, when he talked about sending the Holy Spirit... After his ascension, John chapters 14, 15, and 16, he said of the Holy Spirit, he comes to glorify me. He comes to bring to you all that is true of me. And so Paul says, I'm going to align myself, if you will, in my preaching with that which pleases the powerful Holy Spirit. And I will exalt Christ. And that's the power to exalt Christ. And you see, it's necessary for the Holy Spirit to be at work in this, to change us, to transform us. 
from being dead, as the scripture says, in our trespasses and sins and alive to him. And that's what this word brings, you see, to those whom God calls. It brings them life. Otherwise, it's simply foolishness. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Paul, earlier in this letter to the church in Corinth, writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So what makes the cross of Christ powerful to us isn't when we come saying it's our idea or with our wisdom, but simply exalting Christ. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Verse 19, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul's saying... That, that I come to you and it seems foolish on two accounts. One, the message. He says, to Jews, it's foolishness, a stumbling block, if you will, because Jews demanded a sign. What they wanted was a sign of power, a sign from Jesus that would show them that he could overtake the Roman authorities and be their Messiah. But he died. They killed him, the Romans did. And so they thought, there's no power in this. What kind of sign is that? That's foolish. And the Greeks, pretty much everybody else, their idol was wisdom. It had to be wise in their own eyes. They had to be able to see it. They explain this to me. Show me your philosophy of, of the of, of of the good life, and 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 if that makes sense to us, then then we'll buy in, and you'll be our Messiah. And they thought, but it led to his death. That's not the good life. That's foolish. That's not wisdom. And so you see, see this, this message of the cross of a dying Messiah, a Messiah who actually died, and that wasn't wisdom, and that wasn't a sign of power. And it was foolishness to them. And then the, the, the method, preaching. I, I wish I had the video, you know what I mean? But I don't. Preachers don't have that. Paul didn't have that. All he had was words to say, to make this declaration. And he couldn't take credit for it. And in fact, this message humbled him as well. Because he found himself in it. He found himself to be one who was a sinner in the sight of God without hope except in the mercy of God. And it was this message humbled him. He couldn't come in pride. He couldn't come and say, I did anything to help you with this. He just simply said, I come to announce what has happened. I come to announce that it's true. And I've been saved by it. Rescued by it. 
delivered by it. So I, I, I can make no arrogant statements here. I, I just simply come to announce what God has done that rescues us. So the sinner, the, the preacher is humbled by it. Paul is humbled by it. And yet he comes with this message. And he simply says, here's what I have to tell you. I have to tell you that human beings as we are, are rebellious against God. And that rebellion against God deserves, because he's just and holy, punishment. And that punishment is to be cast away from him. To not know his goodness and his mercy and his love. And that's hell. In his goodness and his love and his mercy, he sent himself, his son, to take upon the guilt of our sin. And since he's the very son of God, when he died, he didn't die for his own sin because he had none. And so when he rose, it was an announcement that he had died for the sins of others, not his own. And when he had paid for the sins of others, not his own, then he was free to go. And so he rose. And we with him. And that is your hope, Jesus. Eternal life in him. But, but you see, if we think about this, this, this really isn't foolish at all. How else could it happen? How else could God, who is just, justify sinners? How, how could he do that as judge? He couldn't. Not and be just. But he could. If he took the guilt of those sinners and placed it on his willing son, who was worth us all, and his willing son, who was worth us all, paid that debt and penalty in its fullness by being forsaken by his father. And when it was paid in full, then he rose, that we might know that there's eternal life through him. Who could have thought of that? Who could have worked that out? And not only is that the wisdom of God, but it's the power of God because it worked. It actually uh, broke the power of sin and death. And we we know it broke the power of death because we see Jesus has risen from the dead. You know, we, we always ask that question, how do we know there's anything after this? And philosophers talk about it and talk about it. But we as believers say, well, we know it's true because it's happened. We've seen one. Rise from the dead. We know of one who is risen from the dead. Uh, And he, as the scripture says, is the firstborn among many brothers. He's the first fruit. And there are others in him to follow. And that is all those who are in him who trust, who believe in him, who have the hope of eternal life. And that's what preachers are to proclaim. And you say, well, well, shouldn't you make other applications? Like, like what about to materialism? How, how do we, shouldn't you be talking about that? Give me the six steps uh, to, to not being materialistic. And, and, and there's all kinds of good steps and there's all kinds of applications. And, you know, we, 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 we rehearse that all the time. But, but nothing makes any sense till you see the glory of God. For instance, just on this one item, and I only have one uh, time for this one. There's others. But, but James writes, for instance, when he sees materialism in the church, you might remember that, that, that James saw that the wealthy were given the better seats in the sanctuary and the poor the worst seats in the sanctuary. He says, that's not a good idea. And so he told him not to do that. But what was the basis for that? 
He writes, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You see, once you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, rich people aren't that glorious. Right? Once you've been in the presence of Christ and you know him, none of us are all that. None of that are none of us is worth partiality in that sense, because we're all the same, really, at the foot of the cross, sinners in need of God's grace to be forgiven our sins. You see, once we see the glory of God, then our fear can go because we can trust Him. We can say He's glorious. He rules and reigns, and I belong to Him. And if He rules and reigns, and I belong to Him, then whatever I'm experiencing now, I know He's ruling and reigning in and over. And and I know I have the hope of eternal life. And and He's good for, for that. And so I can trust Him in the midst of this. I don't need to be afraid because He rules and reigns, and I'm in. And I can trust him. Let me end with this. When I was in seminary, I had to, like all of us, I had to take a preaching class, two of them actually. Uh, the second one better than the first, but that's of no account. Uh, but the second one was taught by a little old Welshman. And I think he always looked little and old. Uh, uh, you know, I think if I looked at his third grade picture, he'd have a little gray mustache. Uh, I don't know. He's just, you know, he's the kind of guy who always looked like that. Uh, Gwen Walters was his name. And he was wonderful, dear, brilliant, great preacher. And one day at chapel, we had a preacher come who was uh, preaching from a different tradition and, and uh, quite a different style than the rest of us and that we had always been taught and so forth and so on. So I went to chapel. I listened to this sermon. It was fine. And, and I, But I made notes about the man's style and, and I thought, this would be great. We can talk about this in preaching class, how wonderfully providential it is that I'm taking this class right now. And I heard this guy preach and, and I can come in and we can talk about this. And so I, I walked in and I knew Dr. Walters had been in that chapel service. And I walked in and, in the morning and, and after the the highs and hollows and all that. I said, Dr. Walter's going to ask you a question. He said, yeah. I said, can we talk about yesterday's sermon that we heard in chapel and, and, and the way this man preached? And Dr. Walter said, I didn't notice. And he said, what, what do you mean you didn't notice? You know, if I walk in and say, good morning, you say to me, Bill, you could enunciate that a little bit better. You know, you're always talking about this. He said, no, 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 no. I was in chapel. There was a preacher. I was listening to hear the word of God. Yes. Let's pray, Father. I pray for me and for us. That you would enable us to see your glory in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. I often pray, God, that you would be glorified because I know that when you're glorified, when you're exalted, then all is well. And it's good for us when you're glorified. So convince us that you rule and reign. Convince us that you're sovereign over all things. Convince us that your word is true. Convince us that the cross is your wisdom and power to save us. Enable us 
than to believe and to live in fellowship with you and to have the hope of eternal life. Hmm. Father, there are many of us on this day that have difficulties. And sometimes, honestly, it's hard to trust. We wonder, really, is there this hope? Does God rule and reign? If he is ruling and reigning, why is this happening in our world? Why is this happening to me? God, we know that that's real in our lives. So I pray for those who worry about our world and our country that you would convince us that whoever sits on any earthly thrones or in any earthly offices still sit under your ultimate rule and reign and that you're at work. Enable us to trust in you, as the scriptures say, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Help us. For those who suffer disease, Father, I pray we have some amongst us with cancer and heart conditions and other serious difficulties. And so, Father, we pray that you would convince again those bring to their remembrance that you rule and reign and that you've proven that, your wisdom and power through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, may we as a church live in such a way that people would see us and glorify not us but you as Jesus told us, that they'd see your glory. And this I pray in Jesus' name.